So I get the distinct honor and privilege of interviewing uh, Hannah uh, before we get into the sermon. And Hannah is a principal at Spring Mountain Christian Academy. I know many of you don't know that they meet right here on our campus. Uh, at least the high school, junior and high school meet on our campus. So Hannah. So um, Hannah, tell us a little bit about this school um, and a little bit about your your background and uh, yeah. We'll start I there. have immigrated from Ukraine and I immigrated to Texas to Dallas, Texas. That's where I went to school and got my education, and then I moved to Oregon. And I was approached about 12 years ago by Slavic uh, families if they could um, start a school somewhere in one of the churches. And so that's how we began. And those were the moms that had degrees but didn't have money to put their kids into a Christian private school. So they decided to put their own careers on hold and teach their own kids. So that's how they began. It was very, very small, but now we're at about 150 students. So we are growing um, every year. Yeah, and then talk about a little bit here in Happy Valley uh, in, in the surrounding area. We have a pretty large Slavic community. It's very big. Uh, Ukrainians, Russians, Romanians, Moldovians, um, a lot of families, and a lot of families are losing their second language. Uh, Russian is their second language. A lot of older generation grandparents want their grandkids to speak Russian, so we continue to uh, teach um, Russian as the second language, even though we have um, American kids in our school, but they have to tough it up, and, and then they have to take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, my wife and I, we attended their, uh, uh, we, we, send, uh, we send two of our kids here, uh, one of them's here now, but uh, we uh, attended their, uh, their orientation, and Hannah's basically like, if they're irresponsible, we just kind of boot them out the door and call it good. There's no gentleness. And we're like, we love this school. Yeah. This is awesome. And, uh, and people often ask me, well, you work with high school students. Oh, man, that must be tough. And um, I don't view it that way. I'm proud of our kids. Um, I think we look at them a little bit uh, beyond, behind their heads. We look at them and they're to their eyes, but we also see what's behind that head. Uh, what is the home that he comes from? What is the hurt uh, that he's bringing? Kids act out or uh, misbehave, not because they want to hurt you. They do it because they are hurting. So I want to see somewhere beyond, uh, you know, what's happening with them. But we have really good kids, and uh, uh, Chris teaches government, and, and he's amazing uh, with our students. But I, I tell him, you will teach uh, whom you build. So if, if I, and they will act out only as much and as far as you allow. So you, you need to create that uh, community of a safe place. And it is my healing place uh, in the classroom. And I sometimes admit to them and I say, um, sometimes I like you even more than my own biological children because, because I have more authority over them than over my own. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, they don't want us to fail. They want us to, to heal. They want to believe us. And, and, and I think that that's what we're trying to do. One thing that the uh, leadership team here has been discussing is uh, we're trying to, we're putting an elevator in finally, and we're going to be uh, building out the basement. And our hope is to bring more of the, the school is now on two campuses, but Hannah's hoping to consolidate the school uh, quite a bit. Uh, so we've been in deep prayer, and um, for one, the, uh, the expanding of the school uh, and bringing it here to Eastridge campus, but also of having a deeper reach and impact on the Slavic community. And so we are really appreciate Hannah being a part of the team and, 
Uh, since us. we're talking about the building or buildings or facilities in general, when somebody starts a school, we think, you know, where will I get the building? Where will I get the money? Where will I go through all the seminars and get those degrees? And this is not what school is about. School is about teachers and students and your purpose. What do you want to do? Uh, in the school. So for us, uh, it was freedom, you know, let, let's believe in what we do and tell churches that that's what we want to do and see if they will allow us to rent. So that's how we found Eastridge. Um, and, and you guys were amazing. You are, um, I don't want to say like you're not territorial because you're also very organized, but you treat uh, my kids, our kids as decent human beings, you know, giving them the benefit of a doubt respecting them, smiling at them, and they see real Christian people uh, in here, you know, people who are here and they do something in church. And it's uh, also um, uh, culturally very different for some of the Slavic churches. The church is closed uh, Monday through Saturday, and then it opens on Sunday. So Easter, it's something, it's like this jewel, you know, with the light on in the evening, and there's something happening, and, and there are people here, you know, Monday through Sunday, they're doing something. So that's exciting for them to see. So, to, so, yes, there was no building, but there is a church that has the ability to offer the rooms for us to be. And if we think about the school, I just want you to appreciate how uh, unique this uh, facility is. We are talking K4, K5, and 12 grades, so that's 14 rooms. I don't think there, there are many churches in the county that have 14 classrooms, that have uh, the capacity to do something during the day, uh, uh, in the afternoon, in the evening, having Bible studies, you know, little reading groups, uh, having a school or a daycare or a kindergarten uh, in the morning. That's very, very rare to find. So we are extremely grateful, um, you know, just to be in this amazing building. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. And if I didn't say, if you, if you have kids and you want to uh, attend, we, there's amazing teachers. I don't know if you met, I teach there, like amazing <laughs> To row. Yeah, we teach humility. Awesome. <laughs> no, and I'm teaching apologetics there next year, uh, so we'll be teaching apologetics and philosophy from a Christian worldview, so we really encourage you to be praying for uh, Eastridge, be praying for Spring Mountain Christian Academy, Hannah, and our reach into the Slavic community in Happy Valley. Let's pray for Hannah now, and thank we'll you. get started. Lord God, we just thank you for Hannah and her willingness to take on this endeavor, to be the principal of a school most of us, uh, we raise our kids and we're exhausted. She raises 150 kids, and your spirit continues to give her amazing strength. We thank you, Lord, for using us to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, there's a bet going on that I will not finish today, and... Uh, uh, so today, what we've done is we've given you notes. They're in your um, uh, in your seats. And what we have done, I I have as I've preached, as various members of the team have preached, we have talked about the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament, the Jewish reading of the Old Testament. Uh, it's the order they read it in. And so what I decided to do today is we're going to be really focused on that. We're going to end our our time in Isaiah. And, uh, and I'm hoping to give you that broader appreciation of the Old Testament. We, I've, I've given you the notes that I use when I teach this, um, and a lot of people, you can't, it's hard to read it because they're notes, they're meant to go with the lecture, uh, but I, I gave you the notes so that you can take it with you and study it more on your own, um, and we're going to fly through the notes, I'm going to give you a little bit of added stuff that's toward the back, or uh, that's uh, kind of... Uh, 
that we do in, in addition. There's two ways we teach this. There's a time where I teach it in two classes, basically teach the Tanakh, and then there's a time where I spend uh, uh, a whole weekend teaching this. So I'm hoping to give you what's in your notes so you can understand what you've got, and then also uh, give you a little bit, we're going to be in Isaiah. There's so much in the Old Testament about the Messiah that I just hope that after today, you'll have a further appreciation of the, of the Old Testament and what it does to really bring this promise, this hope that's fulfilled in Jesus when he comes in the New Testament. So we're going we're gonna to be moving, um, and because uh, it's a lot. So normally this would be two full hours, just your notes, and then an additional thir- three, four, uh, basically four hours with everything. I'm going to do it in uh, 38 minutes and 35 seconds. So we are going to be moving. So um, I'm going to highlight things um, for you. And let me just say this. Uh, I think that what would make a stronger cultural impact at Eastridge is if we were to begin to bring our, uh, bring our Bibles and, um, and to take notes. And so if this is the first Sunday, you get notes and you take them and, and, and study them and apply them out there, then let's make this a, a, a changing Sunday, but let's uh, go from there. So in there, you have what's called the Old Testament, and in the, you have a diagram of the English versus the Tanakh order. I've gone over, I've talked about this before. I won't spend a lot of time. But in the Tanakh, they are not so much concerned about the individual books of the Old Testament and where they land. They, they group each of the Old Testament books into three major sections, the Torah, the Nehavim, and the Ketavim. And, they, and those three, T, N, K, they just put uh, uh, an A in between, and that's how you get the word Tanakh. That's where that word comes from. Some uh, renderings of the Tanakh, it's uh, got a, an H at the end, um, which is uh, you know, silent. But anyway, this is the order, for the most part, that the Jewish people read it. So Genesis through Deuteronomy, just like our Bible, are considered one particular section, one particular book. Then you've got Joshua through the Twelve, which is, includes Malachi, Hosea, all those little bitty prophet books. Those represent the second section of Scripture for them, the Nehavim, or the, that's what they call the prophets. Then the very end of the Jewish Bible is the Psalms through Chronicles. And in the Jewish Bible, Chronicles is what ends uh, the Old Testament. And there's a reason why. And I'm going to make an argument this morning that if you read it in this order, you would see a progressive revelation of the Messiah. That is the reason they had it in this order. With some exceptions, some Tanakhs, uh, there was various uh, Jewish sects, they would change the, the order of their last few books depending on the theology they were trying to bring out. We don't have time to get into that right now. But, um, for example, the placement of the book of Daniel, uh, I have it in your notes as the third to the last book because they read Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles as one book. So placing Daniel there has a little bit different meaning for the Messiah than placing Daniel somewhere else in the Tanakh. And we don't have time to get into that. I just want you to know if you go pick up a Tanakh, sometimes you'll find those last books a little bit changed depending on uh, the order. But let me highlight just a few things in the Tanakh that are interesting. Um, some of these things you've heard me say before, uh, but I want to just give this to you. And, the, you know, Dwayne, when he said, hey, you're preaching that weekend, um, but I'd like you to do something on the Tanakh, at least get them. I'm like, perfect. We'll just get, give you the notes so you have it now. 
and uh, all this uh, Tanakh uh, uh, talk that you've heard um, hopefully will make sense. But in Luke 24, 44 through 49 in your notes, it says that uh, in there Jesus is talking and then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, okay, so the Messiah is here, he has his disciples, and all these people are witnessing what he's doing, and he's like, hey, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the Torah, the law of Moses, Torah, and the prophets, the Nevim, and the Psalms, the first book of the Ketuvim, must be fulfilled. So in Luke 24, 40, uh, 24, 44 through 49, Jesus is basically, this is how he describes the Scripture, the Old Testament. Now, John Selhammer, uh, really my hero and uh, 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 Hebrew scholar, he passed away about a little over a year ago. Uh, John Selhammer says, let's quit calling it the Old Testament because, you know, we're an age like, how many of you have an old iPod? Right? Some of you do. Yeah, cheapskate. Yep. How many of you have an original iPod? Yeah, right? Like, you know, the original. That sounds cooler than old. So I think we should call it the original testament. The Old Testament is the original testament about the Messiah. It's the original work. It's the original prophecy that he was coming. Just in your mind, picture this. You're living tribally. Okay, and there's parts of the world that still live tribally, um, but you're in a tribe, and every other tribe's out to, to kill you, to murder you, to take your land, to take your possessions. This is where you live. Your whole life is lived in fear that another tribe's going to come take you. This is the setting of the original testament. And so as you read the original testament, as you read Genesis all the way through Chronicles in the Tanakh, as you read that, what you have to remember is these people lived in absolute fear that any day now, disease or another tribe or something was going to get them. Something that Americans in today's world just cannot relate to at all. I mean, we were talking this morning, three men and I were talking that it sucks when you don't have air conditioning in your, you know... I mean, that's what sucks. Not that Canada is about to rout us. Some of you are laughing. The Canadians can do it, maybe. Probably not. But that's, that's the, where they live. This is where they live. So the entire original Testament, the entire Old Testament, is, is put in this context. And so what was Israel looking for? They're looking for protection from their God. They're looking for their God to, to, to keep them safe from their enemies. But what they got was this Yahweh, this real God who protected them, but also wanted them to not go take other countries, but to be a blessing to other countries. It's a fascinating story in the Old Testament. You don't read that because you read about their sin and you're like, whoa, man, that dude touched the ark and he dies. And you're like, wow, that God's mean. You know, that's how you read it. But it was, that wasn't his intent, and we don't have time to get into all that, uh, except I'll give you a, a great analogy. I think I've shared it here before, but a lot of people, when I start teaching the Old Testament, because I teach it, non-believers will attend too, and they're, they're just like, how can you believe in a God that vengeful, okay? 
in, uh, in uh, Richard Dawkins' book, it was one of his primary arguments was how the God of the Old Testament is so evil. How many of you, and I don't recommend seeing this movie, but I, 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 I had to watch it. I didn't have to watch it, but I watched it with a friend who wasn't a believer, but he really wanted me to watch it to get my view on it. Um, and, it uh, and it says, I Am Legend is the name of the movie with Will Smith. If you ever saw that movie, it's a, it's a zombie movie, okay? So now, if you know me, I hate horror movies. I just can't stand them. I mean, I, I will walk out of a horror movie. In fact, during I Am Legend, we were watching at my house. I probably spent most of the time in the kitchen getting a drink, you know? And because uh, I don't like jumping. I just, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't like those kind of movies. Well, this is about zombies, so bear with me for a second. It's about zombies, and, but not just like they don't like move slow. These zombies like move faster than like a lion, you know, they're just super fast. And in I Am Legend, Will, so what happened, the whole human race is taken over by this disease that makes them zombies, and Will Smith, and it, what a coincidence it was Will Smith, you know, that, you know, is the one dude that's not a zombie, right? The whole movie is about him trying to find a cure so that he can save them. At the very end of the movie, the zombies are trying to get into a safe room, they found him, and he says, I've got the cure. He's trying to save them, but they will not listen, so he has to put the cure in the safe and blow himself up and kill all the zombies. This is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God saying, I've got the cure for your disease of fallenness, your ugliness to humanity, your depth of your sin. I've got the, the cure, and I'm putting that cure in this tribe Judah, in a greater of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. I've got the cure. I've got to protect the cure, because when the cure comes in the Messiah, he's going to save the world. But until then, I've got to protect the cure. That is what's going on in the Old Testament. God has got the cure. You're going to see it. We're going to talk about Isaiah. But in, and Danae and Christian are going to talk about Isaiah more next week. But in Isaiah, that's essentially what's happening. Israel was not just trying to protect itself from these tribes that were trying to kill and massacre one another. But Israel was really, they had the cure. They were going to be the blessing, the salvation to the world. When, in fact, if you ever want to think about it, think about where we are now in America and Europe and even in, in hostile countries, we're, we're relatively protected. Like, it's amazing what Christianity has already done in this world through the Messiah. And, and very few uh, scholars will doubt, can, would lay doubt that Christianity hasn't had a massive impact in the civility of our world today. Massive. We can bash the church all we want. We can bash our Catholic brothers and sisters all we want for what they did in history. You would have done it too if you were there, but that's the funny part. But, but here's the thing. The Catholic church and the Christ, early Christian church has made a massive impact on the civility of our culture today. Massive. You can't deny it. All right? I would not say America was founded primarily. I would say America was founded by a lot of Christians, but not primarily by Christians, but there's no doubt that even the atheists, as they called themselves, the deists in those days, the deists were profoundly impacted by the Christian worldview. No doubt. Read Benjamin Franklin's diary someday. He was a deist. He was profoundly impacted by the Christian cause, the Christian movement. Even atheists today recognize the Christian movement in Africa is making a profound impact on the African continent. There is no doubting it. So when you read the original testament, when you read the Old Testament and you read the prophecies about what God is going to do, the coming Messiah, and then you think about just the impact Jesus has had in a non-miraculous sense, just the impact he's had on social good order in the nations around the world today, it should blow your mind. 
uh, uh, people in Japan after World War II came to Christ because they were confronted by the reality of forgiveness, of redemption. And what it was is their POW brothers and sisters were coming back from the Americas. The Japanese POWs were going back, uh, so they were switching sides. And Japanese, uh, there was a, a very famous, the lead pilot of the Pearl Harbor bombing crew, he was the lead pilot for Pearl Harbor for the Japanese. His friend comes back and he goes, oh, how was the POW comes to America? It was amazing. These ladies who follow Jesus would come in and feed and bathe us every day and love us. And it, it messed with, uh, Fuichi was his name, it messed with his mind. He couldn't believe that, that this other country would treat with such grace and love. And it caused him to go and follow Jesus. And this happens all over the world every day because the Messiah came through this tribe of Judah and the greater tribe of Israel. This is where we stand today. It is a miracle in itself that we are not just killing one another left and right with our hatred right now. And the reason I fundamentally believe it is because the Messiah's impact when he landed on earth in the flesh was so amazing, it, re it still resounds today. And we haven't even seen the miracle part yet. Us, when we die, we live forever with him in heaven. I mean, it's all an apologetic. We can see the Messiah. We see the impact of the Messiah, even sitting in our comfy, cushy, air-conditioned, lights are perfectly dim, the band is perfectly worshiping. I mean, it's like we are, we are so blessed. It's an impact of Christ in our world today. So this is the Tanakh, and the Tanakh is unraveling this in these tribal lands all the way through. In each section of the Tanakh, and, and I gave you the notes so you can read through it because we're not going to have time to go through every part of this, but that is what is happening. The original Testament, these guys are sitting in tribal warfare, killing one another. You still see it in parts of the world today. De most definitely we see it in parts of the world today. I was just talking to some friends about uh, Alka, the Alka Indians in Ecuador, uh, that the Elliott uh, crew, Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott, Nate, the Saint, all those people went to go reach, and they were just killing one another. The Alka Indians came to Christ, um, long, great story, don't have time to get into that right now, but they come to Christ and they brought the chief Alka Indian. He actually had killed a lot of the missionaries. He came to America to do a speaking tour after he came to Christ. And his first day in a grocery store, he was blown away in a grocery store. He's like, oh my gosh, all the fruits and vegetables and meat and everything you can imagine, and all you do at the end is hand the cashier a plastic thing and he gives it right back to you. He was blown away by what was going on. And, and, and even him, when he sees the impact of the Messiah on the world, can't believe it. You live in it day to day and you forget that that's what's happened. So this is what the Messiah is. The original testament is this warfare, these humanity so evil to one another. They're killing and slaughtering and taking women and, and making children slaves. This is the whole Original Testament, and we tend to blame God for this, and that's not the case. God's just trying to bring salvation into that through the blessing of the people. And that's the whole Original Testament. And so you have this beautiful lining up, and we're, I want to just show you a few of the themes. I put a lot of themes in here, but I want to show you a few of the amazing themes. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, verse uh, uh, four, 14, 
It says this, so the Lord said to the serpent, so this is right after the fall of humanity. Humanity is about to be really evil to one another. The very opposite of love, that's what humanity is, okay, right? So humanity is set up, the great fall has happened, Adam and Eve have fallen, humanity has fallen, and so the Lord comes in and he says to the serpent, to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the life, all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And then it goes on, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. By the way, women, how many women like snakes? I just want to raise your hand if you love snakes. Okay, I'm just checking, just checking something out. I thought I saw a hand go up over there. Over there, woohoo, yeah, there's a weird one over there. Okay, <clears throat> so, and he will crush your head. Look at that singular. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So all the way in Genesis 3, 14, and 15, right at the very beginning, right after the fall, God promises a he, a singular person, is going to come and take care of business. This is in poetic form, by the way. This is a poetry section. Most of you probably don't realize this, but if you, in your Old Testament, when you're reading it in your English versions, they'll indent differently depending on the version you have when they, there's a poet, poetic section. But there's actually uh, four major poetry sections in the Old Testament just in the first five books. There's actually the way the whole Testament, or Genesis through Deuteronomy are arranged is this. You'll have a, a narrative section and then you have a, a poetry section, and then a narrative section, and then a poetry section, and a narrative section. And then toward the end of Genesis, Genesis 49, there's a long poetic section. Here's what it is. How many of you have ever been to a musical? Right here, love musicals. Love musicals. All right, so what happens is you've got a story, and then you've got a theme that you want to highlight. And what do they do in a musical when they've got a theme they want to highlight? They sing, right? And when they're highlighting that thing, they sing all about it. It's beautiful. And when you're done singing the song, you're like, I know exactly what that's about. I know exactly what the theme is. That's exactly what it's doing in the Old Testament. So when it switches to poetry, first section it does that is in Genesis 3. Right after the fall of humanity, the, the narrative switches to poetry because there's an important theme. Interestingly enough, out of all the major sections of poetry from Genesis to Deuteronomy, almost all of them elude to the coming hope of the Messiah. But in Genesis, it's early in the Tanakh, so they don't, know what it, they don't totally know what he is. They don't know totally what the Messiah is, but they're starting to get clues of the Messiah. So notice that when you're reading Genesis through Deuteronomy, you'll say, uh, in your Bible, just look for the indent different. It'll just change. And then there's ma four major sections of poetry in there. Genesis 49 is long, um, and I put it in your notes where those major sections are. So Genesis 49, 9 through 10 is the first one. In verse 9, it says this in this major poetic section. This is uh, Joseph, right at the end of Joseph's time. And then he's talking about, so they're blessing each of the tribes, okay? And the tribe that you got to pay attention to in Israel is the tribe of Judah, okay? Because they're going to be the ones that the Messiah is going to come through. They don't know it at the time, but they're, they're, they start getting illusions. Genesis 49, major section, closing out the book of Genesis, big poem, and here's what it says in verse 9. You are the, a lion's club, Judah, a lion's cub, Judah, all right, a little bitty lion. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah. 
okay, a ruling scepter, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. Singular he shows up again. Okay? They don't know what it means. They just see he. Until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. All the way back in Genesis, they knew a Messiah was coming. Genesis 49 through 10. Look for the poems. Look, look, look for the poems because they begin to highlight this Messiah and they're all the way there. When, by the way, biggest book of poems, Psalms. When you get to Psalms, guess what it's doing? It's an artist that walks on stage and starts painting. And you're not sure what he's painting. But when you step back and you look after you read all the Psalms, you look back and there's the Messiah. Psalms just breaks out. It's, just, it's amazing. And it starts out the book of the writings. It's like, hey, these allusions to whoever he is all the way through to here, let me paint a picture of him. In some Psalms, they don't look like they follow the Messiah, but it's, it's like, you know, like the, the offsets, like the background for the Messiah's face to show up in. When you read the Psalms, read it as one big poem all the way through, broken into five distinct books, painting this beautiful picture of the coming hope that is found in him who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God singing at the top of his voice, saying, I will save humanity through this tribe, of, through this people group of Israel, through the tribe of Judah. He is coming, and he will be the cure. When people tell me that the Old Testament's irrelevant to their Bible reading, then I tell them that their Bible reading's irrelevant. Because I do not believe you can understand the words of the New Testament to their completion unless you understand the depth of desperation in the original Testament. You just can't do it. Numbers 24-7 says this. This is the next major section of poetry. Now, interestingly enough, I skipped Exodus. I'll come back to that in a minute. But there's a major poem in each of the books. But in Numbers 24-7, here it is. Water will flow from their buckets, their seed. Okay, seed is an important word. You saw that. Actually, the word seed's used in Genesis 3. You know, you know what a seed is, right? Everybody understand that's like a child, you know, like you get it, seed. Okay. Will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted. Okay? Slight. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down. Like a lioness who dares rouse them, may those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. Switches to the singular, by the way, there. Sometimes they'll do that. Judah will be talking about this plural big group of people, then all of a sudden it switches to the singular. And as soon as you see that, that should go, hmm, Messiah, Messiah. That's in Numbers. That's the next major section of poem, uh, skipping Exodus. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam, okay? Balak had hired Balaam to curse Israel. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summon you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them three times. Balaam didn't have a choice. Balaam didn't have a choice. In Deuteronomy 31, the next major section of poetry says this, after a big, long narrative, okay? So Genesis happens, and then you have Abraham comes. So you got the first uh, poem. Abraham comes. He has his sons. Joseph just goes through his trial in Egypt, then the major poem. Exodus happens. He goes and demands, let my people go. Uh, this is Moses. Uh, Moses leads the people group out of Egypt after a lot of like serious miracles. 
they go out on this, and then Exodus, there's a major poem on the release of, of them out of, out of Egypt, okay? We're going to skip that for just a second. Then Numbers happens, and Moses is just saying, this is how we got to live. This is it, guys. We've got to live like a holy nation because we're the promise. We're, this is how we live. And at the very end of Numbers, he sings that song. And then Deuteronomy is repeating himself. This is how we live. This is how we live. And then in Deuteronomy, he sings this song. For I know that after my death, you are sure to become utterly corrupt. That's so positive. It's, isn't it awesome? How many of you, when your kids like, are going out to college... Just if, if you read this to your kids, let's see, is this positive reinforcement? For I know that after my death, you are sure to become utterly corrupt and to turn from the way I've commanded you. In the days to come, disaster will fall on you because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, isn't that awesome? This is how Moses leaves Israel. You will do what's evil in the sight of the Lord and arouse his anger by what your hands have made. Dr- uh, and then in 32.15, it says this, Jerusalem grew fat and kicked. Uh, I'm not sure why we have... Uh, oh, oh, go back. Yeah, I saw it. It's at the beginning. Go back one verse, sorry. Right there, and rejected the rock of their Savior. Okay? So what's happening is he's basically saying all this bad stuff's going to happen to him, and then he mentions the rock of their Savior in Deuteronomy 32.15, right at the, in this poetic piece. This is a, in verse 15, it's poetic. And they keep... Okay, go to the next slide. Therefore, the Lord himself, uh, this is, oh, we're, so in Deuteronomy, what happens is, at the end, he's basically like, you're going you're gonna to fail. You're, major, you're going to majorly fail. And then he has this poetic, this, this poetic device that happens where he basically mentions the rock, their Savior, the rock of their salvation. Okay? How many of you have heard that song, Rock of Salvation? It's like an like 80s, I think, rock song that they did. No pun intended. So this is what the very beginning of, of the Pentateuch is. Genesis through Deuteronomy is introducing the problem, the fall of mankind, and the solution, the coming Savior that will come through Abraham and his descendants through the tribe of Judah specifically. So all the way back in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they're introducing the Messiah. Then all of the rest of the Pentateuch is Israel screwing up and God t- constantly having to pull them back out. Because he is determined through them to bring that salvation. This brings us all the way to Isaiah. All the way up to Isaiah. Um, and I'm gonna, we're going to just, we're going to camp out here. We have about 12 minutes left. And let me just show you. Isaiah is a fascinating book. Um, I think that's where you guys are in your reading plan. Isaiah has this amazing book. So basically, in the Old Testament, this is what you have. You have the promised seed of the Pentateuch, and then you have the immediate failures of Israel, constant failures. So they fall. Then God lifts up, in in certain cases, a particular judge who brings them back out. Then they fall. Then there's a moment of repentance by Israel, and they come back out. Then they fall. And then there's a moment of repentance. How How many of you live your lives like that, by the way? You fall, and then God does something amazing and lifts you back out. Then you fall. How many? I mean, no one? Am I the only one? Okay. Couple of, there's five of us in here. Everybody else is perfect. Okay, so this is what this is the whole Old Testament. This is what you see going on, and most of the focus of the Old Testament is on Israel and their behavior. Okay, so this is happening all the way through. Isaiah comes. It's in the Tanakh order. After you see this this fall after fall, you just get through the you, you, the Book of Kings. 
And here they are. I mean, kings is nothing but, in fact, if you look, what happens is after Solomon, Israel divides into two. Judah and Benjamin become the tribe of Judah, and then all of Israel becomes Israel, okay? And then eventually Israel, uh, they're called the northern kingdom, Judah is called the southern kingdom. And then basically what happens is Israel first will get carried off by the Assyrians, so they get utterly decimated. We never see Israel again, okay? Israel, they scatter to the wind, they go away. Judah, though, becomes the main focus toward the end of kings. And in Judah, there was a couple of good kings that actually followed the Lord. And Judah becomes this representative of, because God's protecting Judah. The rest of Israel gets shaved off. He's got to protect Judah. Why? Because his promised seed is coming through Judah. So Judah has a lot of fascinating things. And, and so 2 Kings ends, and Judah, well, 2 Kings ends kind of depressing. So Judah is going to get carried off by Babylon. But an interesting thing happens. Um, let me just, I'll just say what happens. Okay, so at the very end of 2 Kings, you have a king. Nebuchadnezzar is the king. He comes in and basically takes the king of Judah, and he doesn't kill him. He takes the king of Judah's kids slays them, so the last thing this king sees is his kids getting slain, and then pokes out both of his eyes. I mean, this is, the old, this is how savage they are, okay, folks? I mean, it, it, this, is, this is what's happening. And takes this king and puts him in prison anyway, and, and he later on gets blessed because the tribe of Judah cannot go away. All right, it's fascinating. Isaiah is the first book you open. It's the next page after all this horrificness. And now Israel scattered by the Assyrians. Judah is taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And now you open Isaiah. Isaiah is fascinating. In the first chapter, it has one of my favorite passages. God is just like, come now, let us reason together. You know what the reason is? If you would follow me, things would be good. I can say right now to any Christian out there, life is, I can't tell you that you're not going to face adversity, but I can promise you this, that in your adversity, I'm going to pray you through your adversity. In fact, I don't ever pray for someone to not go through adversity, because that's how you grow, but when you're going through it, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to pray that you enjoy that, that you find joy and comfort in trusting in God and what he is going to do in that adversity. I know that's hard to do. We always want to, I'm a fixer. I want to fix it. God's like, that's not your job. But in Isaiah, they're going through their, their, the adversity of all adversities. That You open up Isaiah, it says, come now, let us reason together. If you would just trust me and obey me and worship me, I would take care of you. I would take care of you. In fact, even though you're not trusting and obeying me, Isaiah is going to say, you know what? You're still my promised people. I still got to bless the rest of the world through you. So I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be restored. But you're going to go through this adversity and, you're going to, and it's going to be hard. Entire generations would spend their entire life in captivity. And that's what Isaiah opens with. In Isaiah 7.14 though, so you've got Genesis and you see this he all the way through, little glimpses of the Messiah, but then Isaiah starts to open it up and Isaiah becomes a commentary. Isaiah is a commentary on the Pentateuch, okay? We don't read it that way, but Isaiah is commenting on the Pentateuch and Isaiah begins to open it up and you're starting to now fully see the Messiah show up. Right after you see Israel's fall in 2 Kings, then you see the Messiah uh, starting to get described in more detail in Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son 
and will call him God is with us. Okay? Now, we sing this at Christmas time, Emmanuel, um, God is with us. You know, but the, uh, Emmanuel means God is with us. In 7, uh, 14, that's, that's the verse. Now, there is, this is in context in Isaiah. It's interesting because this is in context. He's giving Ahaz a, a sign, that, and Ahaz isn't going to listen to the sign. Or, uh, a, a, yeah, Ahaz is not going to listen to the sign. And so he's actually going to get cursed, okay? It's not good for you not to listen to God, okay? That's the point of that. All right, he's going to get cursed. And what's interesting is that um, the, the sign here is talking about a sign during, right then. So a lot of scholars don't know what that is because it doesn't actually say in Isaiah what that sign at that time meant. There had to be some type of virgin who conceived and gave birth. A lot of people think it was Isaiah's own wife that did this, whatever. But that's not the point. Isaiah doesn't even care about that. Isaiah is putting that in there very specifically. It's in the book of Isaiah to point to the future Messiah. Because this Messiah is already being described in chapter 7. In chapter 7, Isaiah begins to describe this, this Messiah, this person who is going to save the world. And part of that in Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's that sign? The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. This is why the gospel writers write about Mary and her virgin birth. If you were trying to cover up a conspiracy like an uh-oh moment by Joseph with Mary, and they had a baby before they were supposed to, why not just leave that out of your gospel? Well, the reason they put it in their gospel is because to them, at that time, when they had their original testaments, they're like, it's pretty important that whoever the Messiah is comes from a virgin. Just saying. And we can sit here and question whether she was a virgin or not. I don't know, but I'm telling you, if there's a God and He exists, He can do whatever He wants. And I believe there's more evidence He exists, and I believe God came here to be with us. That's why we call Him Emmanuel. I mean, isn't it cool, like, in the movies, uh, like a good movie, and you're watching, and it looks like the hero's about to die, but you forgot about the other heroes, they like, got lost in the plot, and all of a sudden they show up, and they kick butt. Sorry, my, I can't say that word. They kick hiney, rear, I don't know what word to use, but anyway, they, they beat out the bad guy, right? That's essentially what God did. It's interesting God left the world after the fall, like he was not part in this world. It's clear he was in this world when the fall happened. We, there's an apologetic for a second law of thermodynamics there. We won't get into that, but anyway. Um, but what happens now is the Messiah comes, and he actually steps back into the world, God with us. Not God there, not God on the mountain, not God up on Olympia, or Mount Olympus, I guess, not Olympia. Well, I'm not, I don't know the Zeus dudes, Okay. But it's not that God, it's a God who's with us. He shows up. Isaiah 7.14 calls it. In fact, I'll argue that all of Isaiah from 7 on, he's cursing the current nations, but he is constantly bringing this theme up, all the way through bringing a hope of the Messiah. Isaiah 9.6-7 through 7 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah is calling out the God who is with us and ascribing those titles. Of the greatness of his government and the peace, there, is no, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne, that's the tribe of Judah, and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 
Are you seeing Messiah? Do I need to point it out? I don't think so. It's pretty clearly there. Let's go on. Isaiah 11.2 says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Did Jesus come? Did He have the Spirit of God on Him? Absolutely. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit was on Jesus. Are you starting to see why the gospel writers went out of their way to describe particular parts of the ministry of the gospel and the big particular works of the Messiah? Let's keep going. Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news. By the way, the word gospel uh, in the Septuagint is in the Old Testament first. Just saying. All right. The good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners of, for the prisoners. Isaiah 61.1. Do you guys see? All the way through Isaiah, they're starting to open up the Messiah. And in Isaiah, he's describing exactly who the Messiah. He's going to come of a virgin. He's going to have the Spirit of God on him. That Spirit of God is going to you know, provide counsel and provide all this. By the way, that same Spirit in Joel is proclaimed that we all get. I wish Christians would just live in the Spirit more. I really do. I just, man, just take things out of your life that hinder the Spirit and let the Spirit flow in your life, and you would just see like, oh my word, God is moving. And this is what Isaiah promises in the midst of this tribal warfare that's going on. Isaiah 53, 4-12 says this, Surely He took our pain and our suffering, yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, our sins, and He was crushed for our iniquities, for what we did wrong. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. Do you see crucifixion? Do you really need a Bible dude to tell you what that's about? No. It's right there. And it continues on. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. How many of you have ever done it on your own? Come on. Come on. Seriously, how many did it on your own yesterday? Come on. Oh, come on. I am just going to stand here. <laughs> Introverts, you can raise it. Just raise it like this. Okay? So, we have all gone astray. Each of us turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He gladly and willingly took it on. Why? Because not my will, but my Father's will be done. By oppression and judgment... By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of, this, of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. I think that means he died, right? Some Jewish scholars disagree with that, but anyway, that's how I read it. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Uh, oh, he was assigned a grave with wicked and with the rich in his death. Through Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and he and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteousness servant will justify many, and he will bear the iniquities. 
Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the, trans- and was numbered with the transgressors. He, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Do you see it? This is before Matthew. This is in the Old Testament. This is all over. Once you get to Isaiah, it is just all over. It, you just start seeing it. By the time you get to Daniel, you actually get a glimpse of this dude. The Messiah is in there. And then in Ezra 1, 2, through 4, and we're going to close with this because I've got the little red clock going. That means that you guys are ready to go do something else. In Ezra... It has this decree, Cyrus. Fascinating. I mean, um, I, I did a study a couple years ago of Gentile kings who got it, <laughs> who were actually like at Nineveh in Jonah. The Ninevite king repents and follows God, right? Cyrus, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. You start reading these Gentile kings, they are so hopeless that they actually hold on to the Yahweh, the true Lord, better than Israel does sometimes. It's kind of an amazing thematic study. But Cyrus knows something's going on. And in Ezra, after their suffering's over, they're now, they're now being allowed to return and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Ezra has this amazing thing because he actually records the, dec- the, the, the decree of Cyrus. So Judah's now allowed to go back. That's, by the way, if you want to know why we call them Jewish people, it's because Jewish is an is a undertaking of Judah. That's all that's left. That's why they're called Jewish. We, don't, we still call them Israel too, but Jewish is just that tribe. It's the only tribe we know of. The others are called the lost tribes, okay? Verse 2 says this. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. Here's the decree. Now watch this. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord. That's the decree, okay? All right? The God of Israel who is in Jerusalem and may their God be with them, okay? So they're allowed to build the temple of the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. This is the decree from a Gentile king. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide, with them, to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of the God of Jerusalem. Okay, so they're now allowed to go back, and the king, Cyrus, is saying, everybody else, help them build this temple. Help them build this awesome temple. Give them what they need. That's the decree. Ezra records that decree. Interestingly enough, in the Tanakh, the last book of the Tanakh is Chronicles. If you've ever read Chronicles, you feel like it's just this long summary of what you just read, and you would be right, because Chronicles is a long summary of what you just read. Why? So you remember. What are you remembering? Well, Chronicles has a hint, because Chronicles is a lot of genealogy. It's trying to remind you there was a seed promised back in Genesis chapter 3, and now we're waiting for that seed to come. And at the very end of Chronicles, the very last words of the Old Testament, the very last words of the original Testament, the very last words is the same decree of Cyrus. But very interesting change. Here's what the end of 2 Chronicles 36, 23, the very end. Judah's now in waiting mode, waiting for this Messiah to come. Here's what it says. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem and Judah. The Gentile king has 
realizes who's appointed him to do this. Fascinating. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build the temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. End of sentence. Here's what it is. At the very end of the original Testament, Cyrus, this Gentile king's like, God gave me all this world. Now you chosen a group of people. You need to go build that temple because you're our salvation. But he doesn't. It's an incomplete sentence because in Chronicles, they're trying to make a point that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to build the everlasting temple. And you want to know what's crazy? I want you to just think about this. You are the temple. I mean, go read Leviticus someday and just see how the temple, how set apart it is. And then just think about, is my life set apart like that? This is how Chronicles ends. It's an incomplete sentence. Gentile king, his decree is cut off. And the very last thing is, Who's going to go up and build the temple? Who is it? Cyrus is asking, who is that going to be? And every chorus, every song, every poem, all the way through the original Testament is basically declaring the Messiah is coming and he will do the job that no one else could do. So I gave you notes. Maybe you just spend the next couple of months just reading through those with your wife or your husband and just saying, let's, let's look at the Old Testament and see the Messiah, I guarantee, I guarantee it will change, change you. It will change your view of the Scripture and the coherency of Scripture. It will change your view of 66 books written by numerous authors saying one big story. We need a Savior. The Savior has come, and that Savior is Christ. Paul sitting in the back. I remember when he first took this a couple years ago, and he came up to me and goes, dude, I really love the, the Old Testament now, man. This is awesome. I'm like, that's all I want. All of God's Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All of it. Let's pray. Father God, there's so much to say and so little time to say it on the, on the pulpit, Lord. Spirit, convict people to go and learn what you are actually saying so they can obey what you actually say. Help us as a body to hold one another up, spur one another on, to encourage one another and strengthen one another, to become faithful stewards of your word, all of it. May we see the Messiah. May we appreciate where we are now in history, appreciate the call you put in our life, and we love you, Lord, and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.